Welcome to season three of Ask Adelaide and Anna. I'm Adelaide Jagade. And I'm Anna Ile, and we are artists and friends. This stay-at-home season, we give advice to both individuals and art institutions. We're recording from a basement bedroom in Portland, Oregon, in the U.S. And here by a window in a studio apartment in Stavanger, West Coast, Norway. You'll hear us talking with art students. From Kunstskolen in Stavanger, artist friends in Oslo, and staff at Nationalmuseet in Oslo. Mostly recording from all of our phones. And now we'll hear from an artist friend. Uh, my name is Alexander Johan Andreasen. Um, I'm a visual artist and filmmaker. I'm based in Oslo. Yeah, I'm in Oslo right now and looking forward to talking with you guys. Thank you. I have to say though that uh, Alexander is one of my friends and I studied with him and he's one of the people I do call when I freak out and need some <laughs> advice. I'm just happy to to help out. So a lot of the questions we have are institution related, obviously because of the theme of the season. Um, so one of the questions that came probably from the museum is, how do we concretely reach out to a wider audience? How do we go about it step by step? Yeah, I think that's a really exciting question, especially in these uh, Corona times. <laughs> yeah. I mean how do we actually reach out to a larger audience and, and not necessarily just the, the art heads? Uh, I mean, here in Norway, the, the libraries have, have been doing quite um, a change, I would say. Uh, they used to be like places for renting books and, and now they are places for, um, for all kinds of, uh, of activities. Uh, I mean, it could be workshops of different kinds, uh, maker spaces, uh, hacker spaces, um, and I mean, all kinds of different formats for readings as well, like like baby readings. Uh, and I mean, trying to think a bit like um, fresh about like what the library can be. And I think in a way, like these big art institutions uh, should should maybe get some inspirations from from that kind of of uh, thinking about uh, about um, borrowing books. I mean, because I think it can be transferred into into the art uh, context as, as well. I mean, uh, baby art guides. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I mean, I mean, you don't necessarily have to to have a show or to. To, to have something to present necessarily it can also be like using the spaces for for more like um, maker space and maybe involving teenagers uh, uh, like uh, from another um, uh, perspective and and that will in turn lead maybe to more general art in interest from the audience as well well I think it's so interesting that you say that because uh, that's that's exactly what Anna says you know like model yourself on what the successes of the libraries have been for yeah. creating public space. No, I was just uh, one of the people that we will talk to from the museum. She is a librarian at the museum. So I'm actually really excited to hear like how she thinks about it. Cause, cause we also know more of the, about like the library from the outside or like as a user of the library. So it'll be really cool to hear like uh, from that person who's also sort of this has both roles. He's like inside the art institution, but it's also a librarian has like probably knows the context of like the development of libraries. 
mm-hmm. in recent Definitely. years. Definitely. I think that might be one direction to look at least uh, for inspiration. Uh, because I, I think they have been doing tremendous work in, uh, in opening up the library for, uh, for uh, all kinds of, uh, of new audiences. I also think of like the library or sort of the function as the museum, uh, both like as this archive, but also this place for, you know, like learning how to live together. What is a democracy? How do we collaborate? Like all these things that, um, that a lot of art is also sort of investigating or looking at the contemporary world and, and sort of translate the content more into the the format, which is probably by you, both you and I, Alexander, are talking about the libraries. Because <laughs> yeah, it has yeah. some of the, like, the values that we um, yeah. look for in art. Yeah, I think, I think both uh, kind of, uh, I mean, if you, if you, if you consider the, the library and, I mean, the public library and like the National Museum, I think they definitely have a, a lot of meeting points um, that could be like interesting to, to see if there could be some sharing points as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I think when, um, when uh, for instance, like the library becomes a space like that, someone might enter for reasons other than books, you know, oh, I want to go to the cafe or I want to take a break here because there's beautiful plants and, you know, it's peaceful. Um, but then in the end, you might end up using the space for the original intention of it. You might say like, oh, let me see what's in the section that I'm always sitting by every day. And exactly. I think the same thing could happen with art. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I think there is some potential uh, there in, 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 in kind of luring, luring audiences into a, a, a larger art interest by, by not necessarily um, having art, uh, um, what you call like... Um, like th- that's not being the first um, treat that you get maybe when you come <laughs> there. There's something else that you yeah. that you get. <laughs> but uh, actually, when when you start talking about like how people actually get in there, then it's maybe it can just go to like uh, another question that sort of relates to that, which is how do you break mm. down the intimidation that so many people feel coming into a museum? It's not an inviting space to all. And part of the problem are some of the regular visitors. So how do you get visitors to be inclusive to all? So it sounds like it's two parts mm. of the question, like partly like why the museum, uh, how, why is it intimidating or how do you break down that? And how do you get the visitors that are uh, to be inclusive? Snobs. <laughs> to be the art snobs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I think... I think a, a lot of uh, these um, uh, uh, challenges can be can be uh, um, dealt with with uh, both the architecture and the exhibition design actually um, how how the exhibition is is laid out and and I mean n- not necessarily exhibitions but how the spaces are laid out so um, uh, just like putting stuff in exhibitions that we're not uh, that are not a part of the art, but maybe are 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 not. We're not that used to seeing in <laughs> exhibition spaces, and somehow I think that can also break down this hierarchy of the of the white cube in the museum context, at least. So I mean, thinking thinking other in other uh, like terms uh, when it comes to to the architecture, the interior architecture, and the exhibition design, I think it could be a, a starting point but i think also it has to be like 
um, the people working in the museum, of course, also have to be to be working with with this uh, idea of, of of opening up the space and, and welcoming new audiences and and uh, and making it a more like a lighter atmosphere maybe than than what we're used to from these big institutions. But I think it has to be, uh, I, I mean, several parts. But uh, I think we can get quite far with with actually um, doing things with these quite like. Uh, uh, hierarchical uh, architectures that uh, we're so uh, used to in these spaces. <laughs> yeah. And what do you think about the second part of the, prob- the problem or the question? You know, like when you have visitors, it's visitors that make other people uncomfortable or... or uh, so it's not only the building, but it's like... Um, yeah. Once you finally get past that barrier, yeah. Yeah, you're I mean, inside. That's a- and- that's a, maybe a harder question to to ask, to answer because it's 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 like a person uh, or I mean maybe a a, a cultural also um in the art uh, uh, environment that there is this kind of snobbish. I, I'm not quite sure though. I don't feel like I'm experiencing so much of the snobbery, but maybe more of this like um, very respectful and maybe a bit too respectful kind of attitude. Uh, towards uh, the fine arts at times I'm, I'm kind of thinking a bit about it um uh but um i think it's a very hard question to answer uh yeah, yeah. maybe maybe the schools need to need to have friendlier professors i don't know <laughs> <laughs> actually I, I must say that sometimes i've been to i think uh I wonder if maybe it was the Getty or I was I visited an institution a few years ago which was not in Norway and I it, mm. it was in LA and and some of the um, the staff or like the people that worked in, in the museum they were talking really loudly to each other which was so liberating <laughs> I just found it really yeah. comfortable uh, that people mm-hmm. were having like normal voice conversation well not super loud but they were like it it was not it was not like they were like keeping it down to be all like respectful and la 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 la, which was yeah. so which I found really lovely actually. So it felt more like a a normal place than uh, than this place of like awe and. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one way to think about it is that they they could, I mean, uh, the um, the um, the hosts of the, the the museum could be more um uh like uh sociable with the with the the visitors. I mean, they could they could ask people like, uh, can I help you? Do you want to know something about this artist? And be more direct in that sense, and that could also maybe lead to this uh, a bit more lighter atmosphere. Easy for us, uh, us extroverts to say. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm an introvert, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, that would be some some kind of uh, of getting over this. Uh, how you say, like um, a barrier, uh, for some yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. It can be tough though, because sometimes the role of that person is also to tell people not to touch the artwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're kind of like, hi, I'm friendly. Oh, by the way, you're breaking the rules. <laughs> well, I, I think it can be compared to like working in a luxury store somehow. Mm. You're, you're supposed to be friendly, like, yeah, look at the stuff and what can I help you with? But, you know, don't touch, don't touch. <laughs> <laughs> you break it, you bought it. Yeah. Um, for our next question, someone is asking... I'm going to have a performance at an art institution. 
Are there any set guidelines for me to indicate how much one should get paid by an institution? I will have a meeting with the institution and wondering how I should argue for my pay. It's difficult to prove that the performance costs, even though there's a lot of work hours in it. I, I think this is a, a very good um, uh, question. And, and for me, um, I would say the best um, solution is, is, is that the museum is very like upfront and, and honest and, and um, from the beginning it clarifies the, the, the financial uh, limits or financial uh, or the bird just basically says that this is what we got and this is what we can support the performance with and um, we would like to discuss what you can do for this I mean that's a very like kind of for me a very honest uh, attitude um, but of course if it's if it's like not a, if that doesn't come up in the in the initial phases then and if they ask for yeah performance then I mean you have to just uh, calculate the the work uh, uh, hours with all the collaborators and everyone involved and and hear what they um what they normally uh, charge for for their work basically. But is this something that you would prepare before the meeting, or would you go to the meeting and then just ask? So what do you what what is your budget for the museum, or would you sort of contact them before and try to like? I would definitely ask their budget because I think there's so many like different expectations, uh, especially maybe with performances. I mean, there's so many ways to do a performance with either one person or or a hundred people, and I mean that, that's completely different uh, budgets. Uh, I think so. Uh, it, it's very much in the in. Um, in finding out like what you, what are they their expectations and i think as a museum their responsibility should be to to maybe inform like in in the initial stages in the first mail like this is our expectations mm. and this is our budget how can we uh is, is this somewhere we can meet mm. these things should be like clear from, yeah. from the very first contact, I would say. I think that's kind of interesting because I'm just thinking about like, uh, for example, with uh, uh, this work, our podcast, we were asked like, oh, can you send a, a budget? But now I'm wondering like, would it be, would it be actually better that they would say th something from the start or is it like a way for them to find out like our level or it seems, because mm. we would just sort of, I don't know. It's very difficult what what which numbers to base things on. Um, yeah, especially for something that you haven't done before, like that you. It's not your usual practice. We were really cautious about making sure that we felt like we were getting paid fairly for the work that we're doing. Yeah, I think I think there's a long tradition of artists undercharging their work. Basically, I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, it's so like especially as you say like if you if you haven't done something before it's so um easy to think that it's going to take like one third or one fourth or one fifth of the time that it actually does take yeah. to do mm -hmm. something <laughs> uh, and i mean i think we're very, very well aware that we don't want to rip anyone off <laughs> so yeah, yeah. so but I, it's a, it's um i think also for the museums as you say it's it's not something they necessarily have a clear uh i mean their expectations might not be that clear which, which uh, again creates this kind of um, somehow hard situations mm. situation for the artist 
because you, you you might not know or we might not know what to what to charge for our work so can i can i ask you something then because i know part of the reason why i wanted to ask this question to you is also because i know you work with like often larger productions with lots of people involved mm. so they're they're doomed to be expensive um mm. or somehow mm. at, at least it's a lot of hours for many people and uh, and how do you would people usually people come to you with a budget or have you actually been the one like what you said now like hey what's your budget and how do you uh... yeah i mean normally i create my own budget uh, in in um in uh how is it dialogue with the people i collaborate with so basically i i ask if i want to do a collaboration with someone i i ask like how much uh, would you uh, how, what is your like day salary or or what uh, what would you um expect for five days of this work so i'm always very like concrete like uh in days or in hours uh this is what i expect from from you in this collaboration you could say um and, and that makes it a bit easier to budget as well and sometimes you you slide away and and it becomes maybe six or seven days instead of of five days but still you're you're somehow in in the um, uh, not that far away and um, but i always ask the people i collaborate with how much they would like to get paid for so many days of work mm. and i try to try to calculate uh, how many days <laughs> that's also a bit of a hard part but i mean basically just have to start like really thinking through the project and think okay how many days do i need there how many days do i need there and try to stick to that basically and as long as there are other people involved i always stick as much as possible to this plan but when it's just myself i i often go <laughs> way beyond those days <laughs> so uh, yeah so so uh, this is basically how i try to budget and 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 meeting with like some kind of institution i i, I try to be like realistic uh, in, in terms of of what uh, they can provide and 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 also if it, they can't provide the whole budget, then then maybe we look for funding from another place as well, um, which is uh, mostly how how I've done it recently. So uh, finding uh, f funding and and there being very a large amount of of funding from different uh, sources for one project. Yeah. Oh great! I knew you would uh, say smart things about this. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, can, can we? Are you fine with us talking with a, about a, a, the sex question? <laughs> okay, let, let's let's try. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is this is a coronavirus times question hmm. that we got pretty recently. Um, how how can I deal with intimacy and sex as a single person during this time? Yeah, that's um that's a hard one. I, I think I have to I think I have to quote the Danish news service on this one. <laughs> so there's a lot of good video services out there. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. I mean, I mean, we single people, we kind of this is not our time. <laughs> this, is not, <laughs> this is not our best time. There has been better times. <laughs> And and I think you know we just have to stick to our regulations as much as as possible, and uh, and maybe maybe in a way this two two meter apart dating 
can be a good thing. I mean, you get to know the other person much more than you might have done before Corona. You know, no mm -hmm. sex before, almost before marriage, before like uh, at least a, uh, some months. You know, so so uh, I would say you know try to try to look on the bright side of of, of the situation, and and I mean you don't necessarily have to have to stop dating, but for sure uh, stopping to having casual sex is is. Uh, it's a smart thing, I would say. Mm. Was it the um, New York City has been coming out with guidelines for um, that they were encouraging people uh, uh, not to have uh, casual sex but to masturbate? Like it's a yeah. it's a public yeah, it's a city <laughs> of New York. So I'm following some like uh, sex positive activists and uh, people on Instagram. And people were sharing this like so happily. It's like wow, we gotta this, uh, the state is like encouraging me masturbating, so that and only have sex with your roommates or with yourself, <laughs> which was pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, so so I just had to find this article from the Danish broadcast, a national Danish national broadcasting service, yeah. and they have made this article, and it's quite funny. And it's uh, it's about sex under the Corona crisis. What can you really do? Oh, <laughs> That's the, great. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, the questions are like, can the coronavirus be sexually transmitted? Is it okay to have sex if you have a steady partner? Uh, uh, can you have sex with someone that you just dated a few times? <laughs> uh, what about new sex partners? Uh, can you infect yourself while masturbating? <laughs> Wow, okay, this is great. Is, is it, uh, and the question about sex toys is pretty amazing. Is it really, is it extra important with, uh, with cleansing of sex toys right now? And um, the answer is, uh, yeah, we know from other studies that humans that share sex toys without washing them can transfer virus. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, so to, to, lessen, to lessen the infection rate, you should have your personal sex toys. And um, you should not switch around with others. But if you if you switch around with others, you have to remember to clean it extra thoroughly with lots of water and soap. <laughs> oh, great! We're quoting uh, real news here. So yeah, thank you so much for for Let me see. Let me see if I can send it to you on the chat here. But the thing the thing that some of those questions uh, makes me realize is that people don't understand how this virus is transmitted. Mm. Can we go on to next question? Because I don't want to. You don't, don't want to talk about coronavirus for like an hour. <laughs> it's. I think it's also just really difficult to talk about it, and because like the news are, or like if the facts are changing so fast about the virus as well. So it's kind of. Yeah. I feel like it's could be. It's gonna be could be outdated. Yeah. In, in fifteen minutes. But on the mm. other hand, uh, clean your sex toys won't. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really good. You can trust that advice. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I, I'm going to re read the next one here. Um, sure. How do you set up your work days? How do you keep yourself disciplined when working on your art by yourself? Yeah, someone needs help to Someone discipline. needs help. Before, I, I really had like um, a regular... Um, studio practice outside of school I think I, I really didn't see myself as um, as this kind of person uh, living a routine life I mean when I was in art school I was like 
more or less uh, a school when I wanted to be at school and, and parting when I wanted to be parting and, and stuff like this. And I thought that was like the way I would like work outside of school as well. Uh, but I mean, I've gotten more and more of, of even even though I don't really have any family or kids or anything, I've I've gotten to become quite a routine person, <laughs> um, and I I think almost it happened. Um, I mean, it felt like it just like happened naturally. Uh, so I, I I get up when everyone else gets up in the morning. <laughs> I go to the studio. I do my work. I might work late. I might you know get home at around five six. Um, but most days for me uh, are actually very much about some kind of work in the studio. If I'm not teaching, I, I teach as well. Um, and and uh, for me, it's just like I, I, I could never see myself doing anything else than than being an artist. Uh, and I think when you when you come to that stage, you you might have tested some other stuff as well. I mean, I I have a background as a, a gardener. I used to work as a gardener and. My father is a carpenter, and I used to work with uh, with him when I was a kid, and and I done like all kinds of odd jobs while studying as well. I uh, worked as as a as a in the postal service as well, um, uh, and and for me, I mean, uh, this is uh, my my dream job. <laughs> you could say I'm I'm doing it right now, so so that's how I I somehow stay motivated with this. Um, but of course, I mean, I I get tired as well, and. And sometimes it's really, it's really good to to just get out of the studio and do something completely different. Of course, I need breaks, but I always end up uh, back at the studio somehow. <laughs> uh, and it might not not might not be to create art. It sometimes just for accounting <laughs> as well. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. it's your office. Yeah, yeah. So would you say would you say that the discipline came from being maybe just being excited about what you're doing, and because you said it's yeah. your dream job. So is, that's the motivation? Mm, definitely. I mean, for me, it's like sometimes I don't work th that well. And I must say, like, the last two weeks hasn't been my most effect effective two weeks. I I've been talking to a lot of other people, and I think uh, many people feel that way. I've been reading way too much news, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> updating uh, news channels way too much. And and I mean sometimes you have these phases, and I would say right now it's kind of natural because of this this crisis as well. Um, but I would say generally, if I get into a good like workflow, I I like to keep working for for uh, for quite some time, and and I can often keep this like workflow for for uh, for days. Um, but I mean sometimes you you're out of focus, and I mean yeah. you can't really do that much about it, maybe. Yeah. How how has uh, like are you still able to get to your studio during this? Yeah, luckily I I live like very close to to my studio. It's actually a ten minute walk. Um, but of course, I mean I'm I'm not teaching, so I'm teaching web based uh, right now. Like we are talking here, this is also the way we're teaching right now. So. Yeah. Yeah, so some things have have changed, but I can still go to my studio, and this is not a. Uh, I mean, I I have my own room, and it's not a kitchen, and it's it's barely any people here. It's like maybe one person a day. So, but yeah, I would say when it comes to when it comes to motivation, it's hard to like give a a recipe for for something, uh, which I think is also is very personal. Um, but uh, for me, it's about 
this idea that this is the, my dream job and and I really mm-hmm. don't picture myself doing anything else I mean I don't go I don't go around dreaming of other other jobs no that is the, yeah. I mean that is the same so it's true once you make it work once you get to the point where that's your primary job yeah then like you say if you're not you're not thinking about doing other things then it's yeah it's motivation enough I think maybe the question from this person I would imagine has to do with um maybe it's like fitting their work around another job or around Mm. their life you know they're an artist but they also have to do something else for income and so I I just have a lot of friends who are like oh how am I supposed to keep making work I'm so tired at the end of the day and I can Mm. barely get myself to go to my studio Mm. and this is very hard that's a very hard question because then you to to be able to make that work you of course has to have to be extra motivated um because you you're 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 you, i mean either you're working on your, your your like pay job or or you're working on your art and and you might not have that time to much time to to socialize uh, no, so i mean and then it also takes on like you have to sacrifice or you have to give yeah. up certain things in order to make space for it and in that case it could help to find like-minded people you know like other people who are in the same situation be like okay mm. let's meet at the studio like share a studio mm. even just to mm. have someone who understands and that could be your social life like going yeah. to the studio with that I'm also thinking just like making things um so for example it might be better to have a small studio closer to home than a large studio far away or like things that mm-hmm. I mean whether it's even an option to have a studio but like ba- basically try mm. to make things like as uh, uh as easy as possible if yeah. if it's important to actually go to your studio well then yeah, or just like uh, share a desk with someone somewhere else, or like depending on what what you need, um, mm. so it doesn't become too too difficult if you're really tired to go somewhere. Yeah, and also maybe just even writing it in your schedule. This is something mm. I'm doing today. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, it can be like I started. I I had a a lot of work to finish by a certain amount of time for an exhibition. And I made little check boxes in my like, uh, you know, analog calendar, um, of my goal for the day. And there's something about like filling in those little boxes that yeah, I did spend eight hours, and I didn't have to work make work the whole time. The idea was just to be there, so you know, so I was there. Little things could happen, and then I could take breaks and read or do whatever. But mm-hmm. um, after a while, I was able to like get rid of the boxes because I was just automatically doing that anyway. That's a really good idea, actually. To, to create this kind of uh, work plan or, or checkbox. Uh, I mean, just like, I mean, just have post-its with just like basic things, working in the studio for two hours, check. And I mean, uh, when you do that, you actually, um, you see that you, 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 you are doing a lot more than, than you're maybe thinking. I mean, that's a problem yeah. for me and a problem for a lot of people is that you always feel that you're not doing enough. Uh, right. which <laughs> which is some kind of, of self-torturing brain uh, syndrome i think <laughs> because once you start to actually see all that you have done and, and make a kind of a system of it like uh, either like um uh, uh sticky tabs or, or or i mean just uh, what you call them like lists you know like yeah. checklists and stuff mm-hmm. you, you start to see that you actually are doing, doing quite things. a lot of stuff yeah. yeah yeah that could also help this is really good advice. And I think it's especially because some people just in their personality to have this kind of structure 
Um, but I think it's interesting that you had the kind of like a loose structure of school where you, you did things when you wanted to awkward mm. hours and then you transitioned into like a more standard work day. Mm. Yeah, I would say, but I, I would say that it's uh, when I stayed with Anna in the winter, it was a challenge getting up at uh, half past six every day. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you have you have varying levels of this as well. But, uh, half well, past but six you was are, actually... <laughs> you can stay up late. I can stay up late, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Different privileges. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. And I mean, in terms of privileges, uh, I mean, artists always uh, suffer like from um, financial challenges. Uh, and I mean, that, that's where this like problem with, uh, with uh, the money job and your own practice uh, and these two balances come into play. Yeah. And in, in times where I have had to, to do it, I, I always like try to think out ways to keep my expenses i mean my personal expenses really low so i mean mm-hmm. I, I never buy like new phones or or new computers or anything. i mean so just like yeah. trying to hustle a second hand deal <laughs> the best way possible if i need some of yeah. those kind of, of stuff uh so because that that gives you more time to do your own practice. I mean, not buying a, a new iPhone. I mean, that gives you a lot of time to do your own work. Right. And that, that's a different type of discipline, too. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But that's like a really good uh, maybe that's a good like concrete note to end the podcast with like, don't buy a new iPhone. <laughs> Yeah, don't buy anyone. <laughs> Just don't. <laughs> and now we'll hear from staff at the National Museum. This episode was recorded using Skype. Tell us, where are you? And who are you, by the way? Yeah, who am I? <laughs> um, I'm a Swede in Oslo. Um, I live in Gamlebyen. And I'm, I work at a national museum. I'm head of collections. And do you have a home office or are you, where, where are you placed in the apartment? Yeah, I'm in my daughter's bedroom. She's not here now. I have two kids. They're like, um, I have them 50%. So now they're at the dad's, but this is her <laughs> room. I love that she has this, um, I don't know if you can see this Harald Solberg. Vinternatt in Rondana, but it's upside down. <laughs> so I think it's like cute because uh, this is like this is one of the most popular works like in Norway, mm-hmm. and it's in our collection. And she's like, I gave it to her like this poster, and she was like, Oh, it's so nice! And she put it up the wall, but it's upside down. <laughs> it, doesn't look like, it doesn't look like two mountains anymore. It looks like like two boobs like coming down from the sky. Oh, I can see it now. I can see it. Yeah. Yeah, so that's me. So, yeah. Straight to the case. Are you a person that people ask for advice sometimes? Yeah, I think I am. Um, And it's it's also part of my job. Uh, So people ask for advice a lot. And uh, also my kids ask for advice. And my advice to my kids is always... That at home you can do whatever you want, because after a while society will get you anyway. And I oh, think okay. That... That's like it's a really good starting point for, um, yeah, for helping us also. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll see. But this like yeah. So this is when it comes when it, I think like also when you 
when people ask for advice, I think it's also, I think it's also like you have to give something of your, like your your way of thinking or like your ideals in a sense. I was thinking as you were talking that um, there's a question that might be perfect to ask you. Someone wrote us with a question that seems like um, it came a little bit later, so closer to when all of us were starting to quarantine. Um, the question is, I was wondering if institutions have any idea how to deal with art if you cannot see it physically and experience it in a space. I personally believe that this is a big part of the magic of art. It seems like this crisis, but also reducing our footprint, is asking us also to think about it differently. Do you have any thoughts or advice on this? Uh, yeah, we have thoughts. Um, I mean, we have all these acquisitions to the collection. Um, we we were discussing this um, like yesterday, because when we acquire art to the collection, I mean, it's first of all we have to see it. Uh, and then we have this conservator that has to check the like you know the state of the artwork. And now we've been discussing how to deal with this like problem because we don't know how long it's gonna last. Like this whole situation, no one knows. And um, so one thing is like maybe we can use like this kind of uh, technique and video and. Um, that we can like have this like really like close up photos to see if there are like if if it's an old painting or something we can check to see like if there are any like you know kind of scars or, like damages. But then we've also been discussing. It's I think it's also about an issue about trust uh, that when you buy art, like maybe we can use people um, around Norway that can help us like to go and look and experience the artwork. And then we have to trust these people, like, yes. Mm. Yeah. And it's also about uh, maybe also collecting. We've been discussing maybe we have to open up for collecting art in a different way. Um, for instance, we don't have any sound art in the collection. Start collecting sound art. And mm. um, it's also like video art. I mean, we have like a big collection of video art, but it's, it's also something that you can like experience also at home, but it, it's really like an issue that like this on Corona, home quarantine, um, it affects um, society and like the art world in so many different ways. And it's also um, when it comes to transport, because when um, also when we buy art, like when we buy anything, oh. um, there's like this standard rule that we don't, uh, transfer the money until we have the work in-house it's like um so it's also like how can can we look at this maybe we can pay something in advance or like half half uh because it's like now we have some works that we bought before the crisis we haven't gotten in-house yet so how do we yeah well. and then we also have um because when we work in a museum you have all this um technical conservators and uh, of course um, they can't work now because yeah you need to mm -hmm. work with objects so it's yeah yeah needs a new way of uh, mm. yeah thinking and experience and like when you look at art um and in a picture it's 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 something else because when you experience it live it's like it hits you in a different way 
I kind of want to, now I'm thinking of another question from that we got from a performance artist. Yeah. Which makes sense yeah. to yeah. ask now as well. Yeah. Let's see, scroll, scroll, scroll. Um, it's kind of long, so just focus. <laughs> I am concerned with the National Museum's take on preserving ephemeral art forms beyond the commercial market. I am aware that contemporary colleagues with galleries have their gallerists hard at work to sell their artists' works in the event of the new crisis budget announcement by the National Museum. We have seen an important focus on marginalized and senior artists these past years and important acquisitions have been made by the museum. Of course, purchases set precedence in terms of value, however problematic that term is. Working with performance, in spite of being active and critically acclaimed, I have experienced a total lack of interest in terms of acquisition. There is little knowledge production and preservation and a lack across the institution in Nor institutions in Norway in terms of acquisitions of performance art. I believe lack of preservation influences how performance art is treated differently than other art forms in terms of contracts. For example, I was recently invited by an important regional museum in Norway that produces shows with contemporary artists. They wanted to commission a new performance, but there was no budget whatsoever for a fee or production. Teaching at the academy level, having a work stipend, as well as upkeeping a very high frequency and performing to maintain a steady income, all liberate me from the market. If not for these factors, I would have been forced out of the genre, and for the sake of young students, I think we need to have this conversation. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> no, let's start. Well, yeah. Let's have that little conversation for five minutes now. <laughs> no, but I think it's um, when it comes to performance, there are also different uh, kinds of performances. And I think uh, there's one idea that performance is like cheap, that is like, uh, that is ephemeral, but it is usually like, and, and especially like the last years, I think performance has really um, exploded and the productions have become become so much bigger and more complex. Um, I was a curator for this exhibition with Turi Vronas and when we created this kind of um, performative exhibition, we wanted the whole exhibition to be more like a performance that was always like organic and moving and then we also created um, um, a new performance. It was like all these new issues to deal with, especially like how to pay. Because um, they're like, when you work with musicians, they're different, um, they have different, um, what do you say, like um, rates that each person has, like they have these day rates. When it comes to mus musicians, you have this day rate. And when it comes to dancers, you have this day rate. And she wanted, I mean, she wanted, her idea was first to have like a thousand performances, like people included in performance, but that would be like <laughs> too expensive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, um, uh, then we ended up with 40 performers. And then you need like the rehearsals and then you have uh, like how many shows, how many like, um, um, yeah, performances can we afford? And and it, it all is it totally uh, opened my eyes for like the different ways to work with um, performance. And, and then it's um, I think it's also up to the artist how to 
because some some artists like Tino Segal um, oh. that works with performance. I mean, you're not allowed to take any photos. You're not allowed to document. So, uh, but you can. I I don't know how you purchase the works then. But then it's like maybe it's like you can do with Bruce Nauman that you buy a score or like with Yoko Ono also you can buy this oh. score. But oh. we don't have any scores in the collection. So this is also something that of oh. course we should open up for. So what kind of performance or how does performance look in the collection then? Um, now I can't remember her name, but we have this, oh, Vanessa Beecroft. When she did this, we have one of her films and it's like, it's it's more like, a, it's and it's not, it's more, you know her work, it's, it's more like a documentation of a performance that is oh. turning like as a video, but we don't have any, um, to be honest, we haven't really collected performances. And then we have, I mean, in the early ages of video art, there's like, there's many like elements of like performativity and mm-hmm. people are usually performing in front of the camera, but it's not the same. But to collect um, like this kind of scores, no, I haven't done it. Mm. But yeah, so but- this is also something to discuss because it's not, yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking as well that you, you were just now saying that it's um, that it's sort of up to the artist. But as this is also so new, I think it's like should also be up to the institution or like the institutions should also be a part of like the thinking of how can we document this field or like how can we assist? Yeah, um, and, 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 and um, this is also like the time time to like just to open that like box again because it's like to answer your earlier question how do you can you collect now and maybe um to have like this more like performances that you can buy like a performance like by looking at it on a screen like now maybe you can see it but then it's yeah but it's not only performance but when it comes to all like site-specific works that we buy to the collection, this is always a discussion with the artist. Like also oh. when we buy a video installation, um, what follows with the installation? Do we get the TVs when we install it again? Uh, because when we, we collect for it, like, as we say, for the future, so we, mm-hmm. like the works have to be, we have to be able to install the works even oh. after like the artist is dead. Yeah. <laughs> or even after we are dead. So we have like we need all these instructions. Um, no, I'm just like thinking on behalf yeah. of performance artists who should be in the collection. Like, yeah. uh, or if you ha- if there is an artist that would be inter- that would be interesting for the institution to have in the collection, uh, would it then uh, be like okay, the institution has a meeting with this artist to discuss how it would possibly be something included in the collection, or or would the institution expect? Uh, that the artist has an idea of how it's supposed to go in the collection or I would I would expect that the artist has an idea but then it's like um like most of the like artists that are alive that we buy like we purchase art from uh, or art from we always need to have some kind of dialogue also when it comes to how you want your works uh, work to be presented it's also this um question when we buy in, uh, installation art uh, um, can we like ha- how are we allowed to present it in the future so it's all like this that digging into the details mm. yeah 
but performance is really it's it's really a com complex. Yeah, I'm I'm also thinking of how how performance easily like sort of falls out of the commercial bit, and then, yeah. then maybe even more so the museums or institutions mm -hmm. that don't have this sort of commercial task in the same way. Maybe mm -hmm. have an even bigger responsibility when it comes to these. Um, yeah, I don't know. How do you think about that? When it comes to um, the contemporary scene, I think this is yeah something that we have to discuss um, mm. and also see how this can be um, managed. Because when it comes to Turi Vronas, um, she's also like the first artist that receives this um, stipend for having an, a whole assembly. The government is like trying out this new model because I can see that okay she's working with performance yes she needs like this whole team around her because she's making costumes she's working with live people so it's really something else than so it sounds it. like it's because each performance artist like you said one artist that didn't want any kind of photographs or documentation yeah. so it sounds like that there just needs to be an interest on the part of the institution yeah. to collect this work and then to talk with the artist you know, that you believe in and say, what does that look like if we collect your work? What form do you want it to take? Yeah. And I think it's also a good dialogue to have with the artists because uh, we also raise some questions that maybe not everyone is, is like thinking about. You know, mm -hmm. it can also be help and advice for them, like in, in dialogue yeah. with other institutions. So, yeah. I'm curious if you, because you work at the National Museum, I'm curious if you have any, um, like if you need any advice from us. Of course. Have any questions? Yeah. Why do we need a national museum today? Hmm. What is like you know now we're moving into a new building. What would be your advice on on what not to do? What I I mean, I personally think that um, you know if a museum is being constructed in 2020, it should be something we've never seen before. And yeah. the programming should be like things we've never seen before and just a whole new way of thinking about what an institution can be with a lot of different voices giving input on what that is. Yeah. But it'd be, I think it would be disappointing if it looks like, you know, any other museum in the world. Like an airport. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It could just be anywhere. Yeah. And this is like my nightmare, nightmare for museums is like, if I'm in a museum and someone would knock me in my head, like that there's like this some sign that shows me that I'm, that I'm like in Oslo. No, I'm not mm. in Portland. I'm not like mm -hmm. in Lisboa. So I totally agree. And this is also like a goal to make a museum that actually like, okay, you know that you're, you're part of the art world, but it's something different to be mm. in Oslo. It's like, yeah. So you need like this local flavor, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or this local feel. Yeah. Um, and I think about this when we are working on the new museum. It's also like, yeah, you don't want that feeling. You want something else. Okay, you want, of course, you want to feel because everything cannot be new in the museum because you also have like this, you have this collection. You need mm -hmm. something that mm. you need something that you can recognize, but then you also need something new. So I think like to find this balance is really interesting and it's also very needed. Mm. Yeah, because it's not like, it would be totally arrogant to just open a new museum and it's like, no, history is gone. 
this is the future, you know. Um, you have, I think you need the balance of like the old and new and yeah. You know, most museums have like rooms that are kind of chronological or they're grouped by eras or they're grouped by um, a culture or their or a material, you know, for instance, there's like a textile gallery or a video room. But the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, um, you know, they had their their collection where when you walked through, it spanned across time. So you would have a painting from 2000, you know, what year was it? 2018, mm -hmm. right next to a painting from the 1800s. Yeah. Um, and they would be grouped in ways that like made you think differently about the work because you're you're not in a room full of old oil paintings well, um, yeah. from a certain time frame. And it's it was a mix of sculpture and just like all kinds of things mixed together, but you know, and put in these relationships that make you see them differently. Yeah, I think it's yeah. super important. Like also when you say about these many different voices, because um, because it's it's um, I think when it comes to like the presentation of the collection. Um, I think um, you have to break away from this idea that there's one grand narrative. You have to um, show that um, the context is everything. Uh, and that there are always like different parallel histories at the same time. I think also when you look at like the recent um, exhibitions and like recent art history, you also oh. show like um, Yes, there was also this conceptual art in, in Norway in the 60s and 70s, but people have not recognized it because oh. it didn't look like the New York, like the conceptual art from New York. Oh. So then mm -hmm. it was not recognized. And I think like this goes for so many different like fields. I think this is also time to more like play with the collection oh. and play with like the way you um, display art. And also um, I think that actually the collection could be like this um, dynamic area in our museum, the new museum. I think also this could be, um, you have this possibility to actually act faster in, in the collection display mm. and also like answer to things that happen to be like this fast response to like the politics or um, mm. what's going on and to, yeah. And to, yeah, to be more experimental in mm. a way. Because I think that's super important. Mm. Mm -hmm. I, I think like when I think of the future of the museum, and all, but also like looking backwards at the collection, and and we've we've been having lots of conversations of like who who the museum is for. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, I really uh, uh, am curious to see is that how how the museum and how it's showing the collection will be like explicitly anti-racist because that's needed at the moment yeah yeah i want to know how the museum is committing to a, a anti-racist uh, practice or work yeah uh, i think it's um it's it it's really on all all different levels uh and it's uh important like this um now it's like really like museum nerding because i think when like when know that maybe I don't know if everyone thinks about labels in the museum, but the mm -hmm. labels are like the like the bouillon of uh, <laughs> like the ideals <laughs> in the museum. And and one of the things that we're looking at this again, like this post-colonial perspective uh, that we changed 
like um, the naming um, unknown to unidentified. Mm -hmm. And this might sound like, okay, what's the big diff? What's the big deal? But it's actually like a big deal. Usually, when you portray like um, Sami people or like indigenous people or Africans, it's always like unknown. But they're not unknown. They were not anonymous. Mm-hmm. We have just like been like too sloppy or too lazy, like to find out the names. So it's like we have in the collection. We have this fantastic portrait by um, Adolf Tiedemann, uh, and it's actually. Uh, and it's a portrait of this young black guy. And the title is, um, I think, Negergut. Uh, uh, yeah, the N-word. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and actually, this is something like that we're looking into. Because he was, on, he was like working on uh, a slave ship that went to Stavanger. And so we're like looking into, we want to look into the documents from the slave ship to mm-hmm. see like to find his name and this mm-hmm. is the kind of work that we have to do and this is important like no they were not like um uh, and also like going going back and see titles because sometimes there was a title like if you make an artwork in the um, maybe 18th century or like before like this all like this racism became institutionalized like in like in the 19th century Usually, like in the 19th century, maybe they changed the title into like these racist titles. Mm. So maybe this is like not the original title. And for us to go back and find the original title, putting in more work. Yeah, putting in more work also like to identify these people that were like totally ignored or like overlooked (laughs) or like treated in a very racist way. Um, Yeah, so looking into titles is one thing. Like you have this ethical responsibility also when it comes to like uh, the the works that were um, taken by like the Nazis, like uh, the Jewish works, because now that when we're moving, going through all the collection, going into all these details, because we have to fix like this all like, you know, we're showing works that we haven't shown before. And one work oh. is also, um, yeah, they had like, you know, this problematic provenance, like, it was bought, I think, in 68 or something. And then we thought that it was, um, maybe it was like from this, bought from this Nazi dealer. But you can check the works and this, um, there's like this service for it. Like you can look, you can find out this if family is looking for it or something. Oh. And if a family is looking for it, you have to give it back. So then we know that, um, Okay, no one is looking for this work, and then we can display it. But you can also have like this. You also write it in the label. Mm. Yeah. So the labels are super important. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're working on this, and of course, it's also like um, we say, like to be, not be racist. It's all. It's, it's like you say, it's to be open for different voices, and also to. It's very in, important to like reflect the society that we live in, and this also goes mm. to. The way we uh, program um, when it comes to acquisitions, who do you buy from? And I just, I just, we have yeah. so little time left, but I'm just real curious of one thing uh, that I, uh, in, in regards to this, but also other issues with the museum. Like, what do you think is the ideal way for 
for artists or basically anyone to sort of hold the museum accountable. To hold them, yeah, to always, uh, yeah, to, um, I think it's um, to have an open dialogue with us. And it's also, I think it's also our responsibility to have like big ears and to listen and, and, and to be, um, you know, flexible. Um, and, 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 yeah, to go in dialogue, I think. What does Maybe that that's look like? like? Yeah, I'm curious because it seems, I mean, I don't, it, it seems like uh, the institution would have to ask for feedback and criticism because I don't think the average artist feels like they can just send an email to the director or. Yeah. No, uh, I, but it, I think it's also like, um, I, I don't think it's not only about like this kind of direct communication, but it's, I think the whole like idea of like the canon and, 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 Everything is changing with social media, also a lot. And social media should not be underestimated, such as this podcast. <laughs> no, but it's, I think it's really like the changing uh, what is popular, uh, what is canonized, like expectations, different voices. Social media has been super important. Like, oh. you know, also not, not only for like, um, art institutions or like museums in general but also for like the whole political scene who is heard who is not heard so it's like yeah and also like to have this open critical debate you know yeah to have like a discussion uh, um, like through emails I mean that's like one thing but I think the discussions should be of course be public and social media is public Mm. Well, do you know if we'll see more of that dis- the discursive events when the museum opens again? What do you mean discursive events? Now on these uh, themes, because I was just going through the public events in 2017 and there was like uh, nothing that was related to diversity in none of the events. The only thing was like this event that was cancelled with like an alt-right person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <wow>. uh, <laughs> so then I'm curious of like what's uh, yeah how it's gonna be uh, when it opens again. Yeah, I think um, um, diversity is is um, it's very important and to collect in a different way, to program in a different way, to reach um, out in a broader like. Um, in broader directions but this is like of course this is something that I can just like sit here and just say but future will show (laughs) yeah yeah in 2022 for instance we started this uh, because in 2022 there's this um, 50 years since uh, homosexuality was decriminalized in in Norway so we're doing this all year together with like we're trying to we're collaborating with the National Library and like the University of Bergen, like all the different museums and institutions in 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 Norway to raise aware awareness about this issue. So we're doing oh. also like this different yeah. Um and and then we want to be like more this meeting point and and, and, and platform for this discussions. That I mean, that sadly enough are still needed to discuss. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of 
sad that uh, we can't ask any questions. We're running out of time. And, yeah. and we haven't even talked about like relationships and stuff, but uh, we'll have to do that with someone else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now we'll hear from an art student. Hey, Bahar, welcome to Ask Adele and Anna. Uh, I was just about to say, what's your name? And now I just said your name, but uh, what's your name and who are you? <laughs> my name is uh, Bahar, uh, Bahar uh, as my family called, like shorting it. <laughs> um, yeah, um, and nice to be here with you. You connected with me um, with um, art school in Stavanger. I remember Anna was there. Yeah, I went to the school and said, we need help. So I'm really happy that you are here <laughs> to help. Uh, we were supposed to be in Stavanger together, uh, at our school together, and now... Bahar, you live in Stavanger. Yeah, yeah. I do. So we're in the same city now in different rooms <laughs> or different places, <laughs> obviously. Mm. So um, can we start just asking you advice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Okay. I, I work with an education in a museum. Is the museum a social space or a space to be learning? Either way, what are the best tools and resources museums should be providing to enhance visitor experience and learning? I would like to have a big space. Actually, like uh, the, the place is important for me, like room for myself and the persons to talk, like persons like like you guys, like we can discuss about things, uh, things are there and relevant. Um, yeah. Instead of to make it like an education kind of, but I could wish I could play there, like, but learn. I want, I want to feel myself like as a child, but like an adult child. I'm learning something and after I, I left there, so... And I know that I want to go there again, or I want to take with me something that I want to continue with. Informations could could help, or name, or the works, or the projects. Okay, it's it's nice, but uh, when when it's about to learn, so I want memories. Um, when you say play, is it possible to? give some example or try to be specific like what do you mean by you as a like a grown-up person who comes to the museum and to learn something and to play like what what can that look like do you think like for example last time we were at the scouts oh yeah it's like um uh it was a like labyrinth you know like we came in uh we came in and we tried to find our ways in the darkness and we didn't know where we could go, uh, but but <laughs> when you go out and see the place, like in the light, it wasn't like oh okay, it wasn't so scary. But when we were inside, so like kind of it 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 can be like a play thing, but it's not like after we left there, I had so many things in my head. Like I I, I felt that uh, it was something we created. And we came together. Uh, so I, I, I'm searching things can give me ideas about the, what I can write. And when I said playing things, um, 
like um you know when when children playing uh, they are not learning only the thing they are playing with they also uh, playing with their own creativity oh. and, and they want to make new things I think you bring up a lot of good points because like you said, you know, um wanting to make new things. I think the times when I've had a good experience with art are the times where I just I kind of want to leave the place because I'm so excited and I want to go make my own work. Have you do you have that happen? Oh, I've had that several times and it's so and then it's like, "Oh yeah, that's why I love art." <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, in in a museum, especially in art museum c- can be boring sometimes and mm-hmm. um, we could change it in that way i've seen a lot of museums i don't know if you've been to one that has i can't remember who designed the chairs but they're these spinning chairs and you sit in them and you automatically like they're kind of like a like a children's top and you and with a dent in it and you sit in them and you immediately start like spinning in a circle and um i went to a museum that had those right outside the front door and me and my friend sat in them before we went inside and it kind of like set the this playful tone before we even went in because you can't help it you just start laughing and you're just like having fun in a way that adults you start to realize like we don't really have that kind of silly fun very often maybe it's like uh, creating like okay so it's sort of play or something that makes you be more like aware in like aware in the body or like to be like a physical human being in a way because mm-hmm. uh, I find that like uh, uh, I can somehow it doesn't necessarily mean that I like the art but it, if there's like certain things within a museum that's very explicitly sort of in, in, instruct or directs me like a specific direction or something in the work whether it's like a mirror or something huge like something that that's very confrontational physically mm-hmm. uh, sometimes make me more uh present in the situation maybe that's part I mean, i'm just thinking of that could maybe be some of the same like physicality or like the feeling of uh, playfulness or or su- not surprise perhaps or like this openness that's sort of this if when you walk around the dark if it's dark you also have to be open and will, like sort of willing uh or if you're sort of giggly after like being on those chairs or this is maybe like not, I don't know if this is an advice or like being when I'm hungover, I'm very sensitive or like a premenstrual or something. And if I look, look at art, I'm like, oh, God. But I think, I mean, the question is about um, like, what are some tools and resources museums should provide to enhance visitor experience and learning? I mean, it's a tough question, but um, I think, you know, a lot of times um, education looks like education it's like we're gonna have a tour and we're gonna Mm. tell you about you know the background of this artwork or we're gonna have a a class in this room or you know so I think maybe education that doesn't look like education yeah but I think that's like really interesting what you uh, uh, what you first mentioned about like this like playfulness or this like uh, think of it in terms of or, or just even like this conversation which is uh, not like one person telling you what something is, but actually more of a dialogue. That's also uh, uh, a part of education. When 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 you when you are guided of of someone and like telling you like for example this painting from this uh, from uh, like they are telling you who just made it when and and after that you are going to another work and it's like um, it's like I feel that. Uh, 
uh, eendom smuggler. <laughs> oh, like a real estate agent. It's like, yes, I'm in an apartment and I'm going to that one and we are going another one. It's like not, for, for me, it's not like education kind of. And I have yeah. to go home again with that brochure. <laughs> and I just have to work again. Like uh, the, the thing I liked, interested. So I'm going through again myself in my own hand. Uh, but I, I, I don't feel, um, until now, I don't feel that uh, there is any good form of education in any art museum maybe mm. i i don't have knowledge about that and i'm pretty new in that uh, yeah. path yeah um so i'm just um uh curious now and it's also connected to other questions we've had but when you say like you're quite new to art museums um i would love to hear uh how how when do you feel the most uh welcome um some people uh find it intimidating to be to walk into a museum um and uh but you are sort of a, a new museum visitor art museum visitor you're really very new <laughs> just my, i just began with my school you know and mm -hmm. before that yes when i was like traveled into europe uh, um, or in Turkey also, like I've been different kind of museums there. So when it's yeah. about just interested, but also interested in a serious way, really oh. new. I'm just curious. I, I just think it's like a very unique moment that you're like, I just started going to art museums. So just trying to figure out like how we can try to uh, learn something from you and your experiences. So like, uh, like, why are you so open to this strange, uh, like, or these new places? What is that about, do you think? I've been in and searched so much uh, about indigenous people's cultural rights. And when it's about culture, so it's about art, of course, again. So we are going to the same place. Oh. And <clears throat> to live with your rights, uh, I have been very, like, busy activist and I guess that's why I, I've been so open it's because of that that's why we are here together because we have some common you know that's because we are not judging anyone and we are having this conversation together but beside that so I was busy with with that culture activities and I learned so many things I met so many people there and it's been so colorful. Last six years has been very important years in my life. But um, I learned new language and I learned uh, so many people. Uh, a little thing was so important and could change so much. And do, doing last last one year, one, one and a half year, began with meditation also like art of living. That's also oh. doing something like I'm trying to go in myself and uh, not judging myself. And art came in my life in the right time that, okay, <laughs> now, now it's your time, me, me, me time. So, yeah, no judging, just doing your thing and sharing it uh, in, in, in a... It's very important for me to share it. We all have um, a time to share. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
for listening to season three of Ask Adelie and Anna, which was commissioned by the National Museum in Norway.